Okay, that should be good. So I, I was thinking about what to talk about when I was on my way over and earlier today. And it seems like wherever I go, I don't even know why I always say, what should I talk about? Because it always ends up being some aspect of the heart. And you know, sometimes I go places and they say, Spring, can you prepare a talk on this? Or can you give a talk about <laughs> emptiness and, or this? Or, you know, and I say, okay. And then when I get there and I look out, it just starts flowing out, this whole other thing. <laughs> So I've decided to just go with this as my offering. <laughs> and, and to talk about the wisdom of it and also what we're trying to balance. So there's this um, Amazonian prophecy. Some of you may have heard it about the eagle and the condor. And this is also um, referenced some in the Mayans, but it's actually really, really connected to the Amazon, the Peru, Brazil, the Amazon forest, the tribes there used to tell this, and they said for a 500 year period, the planet would be out of balance. And the eagle represents the mind, right? And it represents North America a lot, the eagle. And you see this eagle imagery. I think our lights are going out, but that's all right. We can see this eagle imagery a lot in the North American culture, right? It's also similar. It's very used in the military. Uh, it's sort of associated with uh, dominance, power, capitalism. You know, it's sort of this very patriotic use of the eagle. You see people in like the Navy with big eagle tattoos or what, you know, this kind of referencing to the eagle. And the eagle represents the mind. It represents systems thinking. It's very analytical. Uh, somewhat, as they say, is kind of more masculine on, on some levels, not totally. And um, the condor, on the other hand, is represented with the South. You know, having also spent a lot of time in South America, it's interesting to hear South Americans say, we're Americans, we're South Americans. <laughs> right? It's like, oh, wait, you know, in the North, they wouldn't associate that at all, right? But it's very. And, and the condor represents sort of Panchamama. It represents the earth. It represents circles, the heart, indigenous ways of living, earth-based ways, right? Sharing, instead of maybe capitalism, it might be the gift economic system, right? It's just natural. It's not anything that has to be taught. It's just inherent in the values, right? And, they, and the prophecy went on to say that for 500 years, this this eagle energy would dominate the condor and it would become completely out of balance. And so the mind would, you know, somehow take over and it would, it would just dismantle and oppress the heart-based culture and also the heart within itself. Uh, sort of this dismantling, we become very identified with the mind. And um, so they say, as these prophecies, as you know, around 2010, there would be this huge shift back into balance. So it's 2012, 2013, all the way till right now, you know, that this shifting would naturally start to happen. And that not that the condor would then start to dominate the eagle. That's not the point of it. 
It's that they actually come together into some kind of beautiful balance. They come together, they fly together, the eagle and the condor. They're united. One isn't dominating the other. They're in harmony with each other. And then this would sort of dawn a new age, rather you call it the age of Aquarius or <laughs> whatever you can refer to it, the great turning. That's a, a word that ecologists use, the shift in consciousness to a different type of living systems theory. So I like this prophecy for a couple of reasons. First, I just like it because anytime you have this idea of balance, that's a beautiful thing. That's what we're trying to balance in ourselves. So what I like to look at tonight is the eagle in the condor within our own heart and mind. How we are kind of split in our culture. And we grow up in schools and in this Western world that we grow up in is very focused on the mind, right? Very much like, academics or using your mind logically and there's a very very strong pushing away of the intuitive the heart this idea these other values that are so inherent in the dharma actually right these values of truthfulness and generosity and loving kindness and right this is this is kind of you don't go to school and have your sixth period or a class B. Now we're going to have loving kindness class, right? How to talk about your heart. They don't teach this in schools. They don't teach this. Now that some of them are doing that in mindful schools, um, which is a whole new, you know, paradigm. And it's also being fought recently. Some of my friends are dealing with, there could be a big lawsuit, like, you know, teaching heartfulness is controversial, right? Uh, to some people. So I think what happens too is that we come into the Dharma, this is what I've been seeing for a long time, and um, you know I've been really lucky to be around and studying for so long, even though I'm a little bit younger than the other teachers, I started at a very young age in teacher trainings and practicing for many years, and I, I was very lucky because I went through a uh, few years back, I completed a six-year training uh, working primarily with Jack Cornfield. He's very lucky in a lot of ways. He's been a friend and a mentor to me and many others. I'm not the only one. But I got to sit in on many of his interviews while I was in teacher training. If anybody has ever gone to school to be like a psychotherapist or something, a lot of it's observation. You spend hours and hours observing. It's almost like you're a scientist, right? And you're observing people having retreat experiences, right? This is what I would observe. They would come in after, during a one-month retreat, I would listen. Sometimes a three-month retreat, I'd listen to see and hear what was happening in people's minds. This was actually a very profound blessing and very illuminating. And to see where some people were progressing and what we would say, progressive insight, Right? This path is actually a path that is, that is walkable and there's uh, milestones and there's signposts along the way, right? And then to see other people having so many difficulties even though they had been doing it for many years. And I remember talking to Jack a lot about it's not as much progress as I thought. <laughs> 
And at first I was discouraged, right? As I see person after person, and, you know, hours every day, you know, 10, 12 people a day. And I would think, man, most people, it's as if they are just kind of capsized. So I love to use the analogy of going down this river. So we have 7 billion people on the planet. Everybody's in them. Imagine a little boat or a canoe. And everybody's going down this river. And those people who had a lot of love and compassion kind of innate in them, they were sort of upright in their boats. So here we are on these boats and we're going down this river and you know there's storms and uh, there's the rapids and there's the rocky parts, right? We all have to navigate through that. It's not just smooth sailing. We know that, right? We have all these twists and turns that are unexpected. But these very small, I would say, group of people that had this sort of innate warmth in their heart, this sort of compassion for themselves, and that natural self-compassion actually was easy to feel in relationship to other. It's not something they had to work at it. When you feel it in here, it's easy to feel anywhere else, out. And so they would be very, they were able to weather the storms, right? So they were just, can go. But the people who didn't have a strong foundation in that, that their, their mind was like attacking, they were very mind-centered, they couldn't, they, of course nobody is trying to be like that, it's just a habit, it's sort of where we're prone to live here versus here, right? It's a point of reference almost of where we live our life. It would be like they were going down the river, but they were capsized about every five minutes. Now, have you ever flipped over in a kayak? I had this happen <laughs> to me once. It's a lot of effort to get back up, right? right? And you're exhausted and you're tired and then you go again. So everyone's going down the river, of course. We're getting down, but how are we getting down and how long is this taking, right? Because, and the suffering involved in the continual capsizing because the capsizing is always about how are we meeting this moment-to-moment -moment experience, right? And some of us who have this quality of loving-kindness, we can meet the challenge in a way that if we don't have that, we, we kind of, we fold in, in some way. So I think one of the important things to realize is sometimes people talk about this loving kindness like it's not that important to our Dharma life. Like, oh yeah, that sounds nice. Yeah, yeah, of course, be a nice person. Oh yeah, I gave a homeless guy a dollar, I'm nice. You see, I'm metta, yes. But I'm talking about what it's like to really live in your mind. <laughs> I'm not talking about how we act maybe on a Tuesday night. <laughs> I'm talking about how does it really feel here and how is the heart feeling? You know, sometimes when I come in certain environments, I, I stop traveling a lot. I'm only coming to a few sanghas. And earlier on, I used to go to all the teacher sanghas on the spirit rock list. And they'd say, can you come to my sangha, my sitting group in here and here and here? And I already had a really thriving Oakland community. And so, and I would go to all these different communities and I would feel this coldness sometimes when I would come in, like, whew, burr, right? And people would stare at me like, you know, I would be like, okay, hello, everyone, you know? And I was like, wow, I couldn't feel any heart. 
there's no warmth there, right? I would, I would sense that. And you know how it is when you meet someone who is open-hearted and loving. It's a difference. It's almost like everybody is embraced. It's like, ah, here you are. And it comforts people. We feel that. I love how the Dalai Lama, whenever he gives teachings, he often says, I don't know why people like me so much. He was saying this recently. Uh, oh yeah, maybe it's because I have such a kind heart. And he was like, of course that's why. You know, you're like a giant fire. We just get under the fireplace and warm up. But this quality, it can be developed if we focus on it. And sometimes we don't because we think that the Dharma is mind, a bunch of mind tricks, mind training. And this is a big fundamental mistake that I've seen. And I was talking to other senior teachers, especially Jack, who's like kind of known for this heart, right? And he's like, I know, I've noticed this year after year, this dryness, and I keep trying to water the seeds of it. You know, obviously, path with heart, wise heart, forgiveness, loving, you know, everything is just kind of focused on this to get our attention. Because we start to think that the Dharma is here. In Tibetan Buddhism, the mind is considered here. Did you know that? It's not here. But most of us, especially in the north, the habit is to live from here up. Well, if you live from here up, where is the fundamental missing piece? Your heart is here. <laughs> it's in your body. And this embodiment, we have to feel, learn how to feel things. You know, we have to the heart is alive. It has its own uh, rhythm and dance. There's this great organization called HeartMath. Have people heard of it by these physicists? They've been doing all this, uh, basically studying the heart. And do you know the heart can pick up a natural disaster way before it happens? Its rhythm starts changing in preparation for it. Right? It, it was all this wisdom, like the heart has its own life system, its own ecology, only that we're out of sync with it. <laughs> it's like it's going one way and we're dancing to a whole different rhythm. Right? And then what happens in that? There's a certain amount of suffering. And so the shift of the balancing has to start to come. And I think in some ways, the Amazonian people, they were pointing to the shift in the mind, right? They, it wasn't so much the outer of the birds uniting. They were talking about an energy. Um, rather, you call it the masculine and the feminine, the yin or the yang or whatever, however you want to refer to it, elemental, you can refer to it that way. But there's a coming back, and I guess when I go teach now, I just always want to remind people about how important heart practices truly are. The Buddha wasn't just sitting around so much in his enlightened days looking at his mind. He was naked on the earth listening. This isn't earth practice. This is a, this is a raw practice, a practice of feeling. It's not just mental gymnastics, right, where we can think our way to liberation. We actually have to open to liberation. We have to shed. You have to become vulnerable in the Dharma. If you think you're going to open your open to liberation without shedding anything, good luck. 
And this is what I was seeing at a very young age. I would see people fighting, hanging on to those walls, right? And they were trying to crumble, and there, it was like Rocky Balboa and Apollo Creed meet at the, you know, with people's minds, you know, this, can they let go? This is about real vulnerability. It's about being naked. It's about opening and then training in some way in this. How do you love people? Are you able to let people love you? When you think of others, is there compassion at all there? Or do you think of yourself, is there compassion there? I think it, that's the bigger one. When you're with yourself, is there kindness in the mind? And if you're, not, if you're finding an absence of that, I would encourage you to take up the practice of metta and self-compassion for a period. Because what we want to do is we want to find that balance. We want to find this place that can come into harmony. I want to also, before it's getting a little bit later, but I want to tell you one story because I think it's funny. People like it. And um, every, I learned from this story. So I brought his photo, but you're probably not going to be able to see it, but I'll leave it up here. It's Kempo Gyatso Rinpoche, Venerable Kempo. Some of you know him? Yeah, some might have sat with him. Anyway, I'll describe him a little bit. He's about 90 now, <laughs> Tibetan monk. He grew up in Tibet and then left with a wave of people who became refugees. Um, Kempo is one of the last of those old school masters, spent 20 years in a cave, you know, those great, you know, he's a wandering yogin over the land and sadhu and he, uh, he's known because he loves to sing, so he sings a lot of songs. So I had heard, and he's also the guru and the teacher to many, many, a very, um, beautiful lamas and also had Clement teachings to his holiness and other great teachers and so this is maybe about 12 years ago and I used to live on 23rd and Folsom in the Buddhist Peace Fellowship House and we were all going to go to see Kempo and hear his teachings. He was actually going to be teaching in Marin and I was very excited to hear these teachings because he to me was what epitomized a great master and he was teaching for two days on the nature of mind. So I was like, I got to get these teachings, the nature of mind teachings. I must have this. I must understand this. I was, I was excited. So we get to the venue in San Rafael, and there's maybe a couple hundred people. It's actually quite a small, intimate group. And uh, Kempo's there, and he has a translator. He speaks no English, barely. And so his translator's there, and um, I thought it was really funny when I walked in because there was a stage and a pillow, and there was all these toys out, like little zinger things and buzzy things, and I was like, wow, that's really interesting, like all these like kind of party toys and glow-in-the-dark toys and glow sticks. And, and then um, 
was like, okay, great, yeah, maybe he's really into that. Okay, this is, yeah, I'm, I, I have a sense of humor. So we go and they, and Kempo comes in and we're all doing our bows and prostrating. It's like, Kempo, great, okay, here we are. Nature of mind teachings. I'm ready, you know, my notebook, I have everything. I'm like, give me these teachings. And then he just looks at us for a really long time, like beyond the point of comfortable, you know, when you're just looking for really long. So everyone starts laughing. And so then he has all these songbooks that he had his uh, community translate into English. And then so instead of giving the teaching, he was like, okay, well, let's sing some songs. So I was like, sing some songs. Okay, all right, let's sing some songs. This singing went on for like an hour. And the songs were very churchy because in Tibetan they don't sound like they do in English. And he was just singing and happy and just like going on. And then I would think, okay, this is going to end any moment, right? I was really not wanting to sing anymore. And um, he, okay, so finally that ended. I was like, okay, great. Now that the teachings, we've said all our devotional songs, and then he would just look at us for a long time, and I'd get more irritated, and then, and then the translator, he would tell something to the translator, and the translator would say, Rinpoche says relax, relax your mind, and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm relaxing my mind, but where are the teachings, you know, I was getting more. So then, up on the stage, someone had brought this little monkey, and the monkey had these two thimbles between it. It was like this big. You get them at Rite Aid or wherever, and you press a button, and it sings a song. It was like one of these stuffed animals. Uh oh. So, and as the song on this particular one was that song, Wild Thing. And so he gets the monkey and he puts it there and he looks at us and he presses the button and it's like, Wild Thing. And he laughs and laughs and laughs. Oh, he thought that was so funny. And it was kind of funny, right? So I'm laughing. But the day is going on. There has been no teachings, right? So then he, he looks at the monkey again and he presses it again. This then went on for a while, the monkey. Then he's like, oh, now let's sing some songs again, right? And hours are now going by, and no one else seemed bothered but me. I was getting more and more frustrated, like, where is the nature of mind teaching? And all they would say was, Rinpoche says, relax your mind, relax your mind. The day goes, I'm beyond so it just triggered something in me because I really wanted teachings on the nature of mind. I really had it in my mind this would do something for me. I didn't really want this giggling llama thing to go on. I liked it at first, you know. So I was, I'm like, I'm not going back. Oh, I was so angry. It just this anger. I was just, I was really surprised at it. So then my friends all talked me into going again, and they were carpooling. So one time there, I have to be there. So I was like, okay. They're like, he's gonna give the teachings today. Of course, he's giving them today. You have to go back. I was like, okay, let's go back. Basically, it was the same thing. <laughs> he starts off the morning with the wild thing, gorilla, with more songs, and, all, and he was even more giggly, and all he basically said was, 
to the translator, relax your mind. And everybody else seemed so into it, including my friends. Oh, I, was, I went outside, I came back in, I was just like, oh, God. I finally just sat in the back row and just felt like crying because I wasn't getting these profound teachings by this great master and I wanted to know the nature of mind. I thought it would liberate me upon hearing it. I'd read all these stories about how he gave these huge, long lectures on complex, you know, he knew this. Why was he denying it and just playing with his toys? And that's basically what he did all afternoon. He'd pick up one thing, laugh, and then they're like, let's sing now. And then all oh, the singing, so horrible to me it was. And basically, five o'clock came, and they're like, let's wish Rinpoche goodbye, everyone. And wasn't that so beautiful? And I was like, what are they talking about? We got nothing out of this. And so as Rinpoche gets up, and you know, he has an attendant, he was quite, quite small and elderly, so they are picking him up, and he's just like this. And as we walk out, I was just in the back row, just like, oh, God, you know, trying to be with my aversion and anger, you know. And I just look over, of course, I'm starting to bow as he's getting near. I wasn't going to not bow, you know. So I was bowing. And he just goes, he waved. And I kid you not, I burst into tears and yelled out, I'm going to miss him so much. It was like spontaneous. And at that point, my friends just were like, we don't know what's going on with you. You stay in the corner over there. And on the way home, there was this deep, it was like the nature of mine was this joy. And he was so warm. It was like the room was so, it was just like all he did was look at us and there was love there. I was missing it because I wanted something. And I was missing this man just basically giving everyone else was getting the hit but me, right? Because I was so fixated on give me the teaching that I need to have. And as he drove off, it hit me in that moment because just the wave was just so much like, yeah, to my heart. <laughs> it was like a wink at my heart, you know. And I've appreciated that because in our longing to get, to have, to achieve, we overlook the profound depth of our own heart, right? We miss it. And we miss how, how actually vulnerable we are and caring we are. And we miss how big this heart is. And our heart actually longs to be free. Its nature is to be free. In the text, the Buddha says, the boundless capacity of this heart, boundless compassion, boundless joy, boundless equanimity, boundless loving kindness. But then how many of us actually feel that even for a moment or two? You know, I missed the weekend. Everybody else was blissed out. You know, I had missed that, but I needed to miss that because I saw how my mind had taken the Dharma and tried to concretize it down and to give me something that was all mental, right? And a fixation on my mental capacity, which I have, and that's important. It's not that that's not. It's just that is there balance between those two? It's not that we want to put one over the other, we just want to bring them together so one isn't crushing the other. Because then there's no joy in that, really. So I just, I'm going to 
leave this picture of Kempo up here if you want to come see it. And you'll right away look into it. I just photocopied it. It's just a black and white. But you'll see that twinkle and you'll get the transmission. And you can look him up. He's still alive, still teaching, even in his 90s. I wrote his name up there. And the funny thing was, I heard that he went on to Colorado and for five days gave the best nature of mind <laughs> teachings with Mahamudra complex ritual. He played only very few songs, songs, very few songs, and only played with his toys for a little bit. And I, I just had to laugh at that, like, okay. <laughs> So I just hope that this provides a little bit of inspiration to come back to your heart practices and to remember that we're not here to perfect ourselves. We're here to perfect our love. This is it. Don't get into self-perfectionism. Look at how you love people, how you care, how you love yourself. Like, am I loving right now? Am I caring? And stop and reset in that moment. And that's the training, is the resetting over and over, inclining the mind, right? To care about others, this compassion that this planet needs now. It's not more mental gymnastics, right? But what we are longing for is the condor. We have to balance that. So, once again, it was really great to be with you all. And thank you for your warm-hearted attention. And may our evening tonight be for the benefit of all. Thank you. And you can look up uh, a retreat we're doing Howie and I, Undefended Heart, which Howie and I talk a lot about this heart and opening the heart. It's a big thing that we, we love to dialogue around. So I hope you can look that up uh, coming in the fall. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.